Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Before we start, we want to tell you about a great way to get some Christmas presents sorted. Yes, our early bird offer lets you buy a gift subscription to New Scientist from just £49.50 and that includes a free goodie bag worth over £40. In your goodie bag you get three copies of the New Scientist Essential Guide and it all comes in a lovely gift box. So go to newscientist.com slash earlybird22 and get your presents sorted early. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by new scientist journalists Michael LePage, Carissa Wong and Madeline Cuff. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. This week, we're going to be hearing more from that beloved and, and actually vicious garden bird, the robin. Lovely. We've also got news of what we've learned with the sequencing of a load of Neanderthal genomes. And Carissa has an amazing story of how transplanted livers can keep working for over 100 years. And I've been speaking with a couple of scientists about a proposal to conduct a local form of geoengineering. And this is a fascinating idea to physically slow down the melting of ice sheets to buy us time to get carbon emissions down. So that's coming up. We're going to start, though, with bird flu. And I know that this has been a a really bad year for birds. Um, There were lots of dead seabirds over the summer. But now it's getting even worse, Maddie. Yeah, unfortunately, that's right, Penny. Um, So last year was a really bad year for bird flu in the UK, the worst on record. And the even worse news is that the UK is gearing up for an even worse winter this winter. Infections this year are already six weeks ahead of where they were this time last year. So it looks like this year is going to be the worst on record for avian flu. That's really worrying. Is this all from the same H5N1 avian flu virus that sort of cropped up in spring last year and and it just hasn't gone away? Yeah, essentially, avian flu usually appears every year over the winter in the UK and then kind of disappears again. Well, in spring 2021, it arrived and it doesn't seem to have gone away. So since October last year, More than three and a half million captive birds have been culled and countless more seabirds um, such as gannets and skewers have also been wiped out by the virus. And do we know what's different then? Because we normally think of flu as being, like you say, seasonal. Why is it just hanging around? 
So the short answer is that scientists don't quite know. There's some very early evidence to suggest that the virus may have mutated so it can survive longer in a natural environment, which means that it can spread to different wild bird populations more easily. But it's really not clear yet. What is clear, though, is that as we head into the winter and and the weather gets colder and there are already high levels of infection circulating in the wild, that means that the virus has the potential to explode this winter, um, particularly as migratory birds such as geese and swans arrive back to the UK this autumn. So is there anything we can do about it? Well, there's not much, unfortunately, that we can do to save the wild birds. We can't control where they fly or where they nest or who they interact with. But we can keep them away as much as possible from the public. So some islands have been closed to visitors to try and stop the spread. But the main thing that officials are focusing on is stopping the disease getting from the wild birds into captive birds. So there's a big focus on biosecurity around poultry farms and egg farms. So you'll see farmers implementing lots of kind of biosecurity regimes such as cleaning their vehicles, changing clothes and changing shoes before people move from the wild into the farm area. I mean, I just wondered, is this is a stupid question, but can you make a vaccine for bird flu? I mean, obviously you, could, you can then administer it, but I guess theoretically you could make a, a vaccine for it, right? Yes, yeah, so there is a vaccine, but by all accounts, it's not a very good one. So it's not allowed to be used in the UK because it's not proven very effective and it makes it very hard to sort the vaccinated birds from the unvaccinated birds and to spot illness in both of those groups. So at the moment, we don't vaccinate birds in the UK, but because of this crisis and the avian flu this year has not just been seen in the UK, this is a problem across Europe and in the US, that, it, that has kick-started talks on making this vaccine better, essentially, to see if that's a way out of this. And I guess we should say, if anyone sees a a sick bird in the wild, don't approach it, don't touch it. But there are numbers you can call to report them in. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thanks, Maddie. Uh, We're going to stay with birds now. Uh, It's life form of the week time. And Penny, you've got a very familiar bird for us this week. Should we have a listen? Yeah, let's. Yeah, beautiful. And if you live in Europe, uh, that's probably a a very familiar sound to you. It's the song of the European robin. And that's an extremely common bird, uh, very well known here in the UK. Yeah, I think uh, second only to blackbirds, isn't it? Uh, For the melodiousness of, of its song. Yeah, I, I, it is beautiful. And I always sort of, um, although they sing all year round, I always associate robins particularly with those darker, colder months we're going into now, because not many birds actually sing all year round, but robins, they're one of the only birds you'll come across singing, you know, in the in the depths of December and January, because they're really territorial. And that's why they sing much of the time. Okay, so why are we listening to their lovely song? So this is a really interesting study from uh, France, where they discovered that female robins sing just as well and as beautifully as male robins, which we just didn't actually know before. Right, but they're singing to defend territory. So do females have territories as well, I guess? Yeah, so that's what's so interesting about this is basically that due to our own biases, ornithology has been ignorant for a really long time when it comes to female songbirds. There's just been this sort of default view that the main purpose of birdsong is to attract a mate. So it's the males that do all of the really impressive singing. And until basically the start of this century, hardly anyone even thought to study whether females also sing beautifully and well too. (laughs) But like you say, it does make sense. You know, if they're singing to mark territory, robins aren't sociable, um, they're really aggressive and they 
they need uh, each of them to have a territory that will see them through the winter and give them enough food. So of course, females are going to sing to assert their territories just like males do. And yes, they are aggressive. 10% of all adult male robin deaths and 3% of female deaths are caused by being murdered by another robin. God, I didn't know that. They try and peck the neck to sever the spinal cord. So they are vicious little bastards, basically. (laughs) (laughs) But are there any differences in the male and female song? Well, we've got clips, so let's take a listen. Uh, First off, uh, we can have that male robin singing again. And here's the female... Oh. <laughs> yeah, I I would not be able to tell them apart. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, they're not exactly identical, but they're not hugely different either. No. And so, you know, any differences there are probably down to individual variation because what the team did, they recorded clips from 22 birds and they listened to about 12 songs from each of these 22 birds. So, you know, that's quite a lot of song that they analysed in the end. Hmm. And they looked at various measures and by all the measures, the female songs were essentially the same as the males. They used the same pitches, the similar amounts and types of variation and and patterns and and all of that. Yeah. Okay. So... This is good that this has kind of been adjusted now, this sort of acknowledgement of of what female robins are doing. But is it part of a wider trend? Yeah. And since more women have been moving into the field of academic ornithology, it's become clear that probably singing was actually ancestrally something that was shared uh, among both sexes of the songbirds. And so you do have some species today where only the males sing, but that's probably because those females lost it for some reason, rather than this idea that it's really a male trait and some females are just sort of getting in on the act. Isn't it incredible? Well, I suppose it's not, you know, it's not that incredible, but that male male ornithologists have just been, you know, failing to, I, to notice this. I, it is. I do find it incredible because, you know, often I'm cynical and not surprised by bias creeping into things, but it mm. blows my mind that um, some men would more readily identify with a male bird because the sexes in mammals and birds are completely different they're determined by different chromosomes there's no shared evolutionary history basis between the sexes in male and female birds and and mammals so you know if you think about even the sort of gender roles and inverted commas it's completely different in birds there's no pregnancy or lactation so the dynamics between the sexes are different too but yet the very fact that they're male seems to have caused some bias which is just incredible let's take a quick break it's competition time Yes, you can win a £2,000 Discovery Tours voucher, and that can be used for any Discovery Tour, cruise or expedition in 2023. New Scientist Discovery Tours are unique science-themed tours, cruises and expeditions across the globe. Yeah, I've been on one of them, actually, to the Arctic Circle, uh, saw the Northern Lights. Uh, Mm. It was an amazing trip. Go to newscientist.com slash tours to enter this competition. It runs until the 31st of October. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back, and it's time for some Neanderthal news. Michael, what's the latest? Yes, as I'm sure most people are aware, we've been sort of slowly sequencing Neanderthal genomes and uh, we've, we've got around 20 so far and our team has done another dozen all at once. These individuals are all from a cave in the Altai Mountains in what is now Siberia. And it turns out they all lived around the same time. So this gives us our best look so far at what the social life of Neanderthals was like. Ooh, fascinating. So we've got these genomes from a whole load of people in one cave. What do we know about them? Well, it turns out loads of them are related. So we've got a father with a teenage daughter among the individuals. And this father, he's has got mitochondrial DNA that's the same as at least two other men, which means they might have the same grandmother. Another man and a woman are second degree relatives. That means the woman might be the aunt of the man, for instance. Uh, the team don't have enough of their DNA to determine the precise relationship. But it's amazing, actually, isn't it? So the cave was basically their family home, and we've been able to paint a picture of the of the family home and and and, and sort of understand a bit about the social structure of this group. Yeah. So uh, the, the main finding from this is that it shows that men stayed in the same group, whereas women moved to other groups. Uh, most, if not all, women moved to other groups over time. There was a little evidence for this from a small study in 2010, but this latest study makes the case a lot stronger. It's an amazing sort of source of information, isn't it? it, Can we tell anything else from all these genomes? Yeah, so the the other finding is a bit more disturbing, which is that there was a really high degree of inbreeding. That means that people were having children with people who were sort of slightly related to them over many generations. In fact, this group is so highly inbred that the only comparable levels we know of are in critically endangered species like gorillas. So this means that these this population was very small and isolated. Whenever we talk about Neanderthals, you know, the big question is why aren't they still here today? Do you think inbreeding could have contributed in some way? Well, it definitely didn't help. Uh, <laughs> But uh, what we what we can say is this group lived around 51,000 years ago, maybe a bit longer, and Neanderthals survived at least another 10,000 years, 15,000 years. Uh, we also know this cave was right on the edge of the range of Neanderthals, so it's, it's possible that this is a characteristic of this specific group rather than of Neanderthals more centrally. Yeah, and well, sometimes inbreeding isn't that bad a thing to do. You know, it, do, it might not um, sort of drive a species extinct. Lots of animals get away with inbreeding and, and plants for for many, many years. Not that I'm recommending it. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- there are other studies which have found abnormalities in Neanderthal skeletons and speculated that those were due to inbreeding. Right. Um, so we can't say if this inbreeding was, was sort of harming these individuals, but it's it certainly, I mean, it is possible. 
But do we know anything about this specific set, this family group, about you know how they died out? No, it's a bit of a mystery. So the uh, researcher Benjamin Peter told me he thinks they probably all died around the same time, but there's no sign of burial. We don't know what happened, so that, that's a, that's a mystery. That murdered uh, by humans, probably. <laughs> well, I, I don't think there are any modern humans there at this time, so we can right. probably rule that one out. But okay, uh, good. We're off the hook yeah, for that. Yeah. Next up, we've got an intriguing story about how transplanted livers can keep working for over 100 years. Yeah, so livers transplanted from older donors can last a century in total and sometimes outlive ones from younger people. And we know that livers have these amazing regenerative properties. But Carissa, this is taking it to another level, isn't it? What's, what is going on? Yeah, it's really quite amazing. So researchers basically looked at over data from over 200,000 liver transplants that occurred from deceased donors that donated their livers after they'd passed away and sort of donated to recipients who needed them. And when they looked at these transplantations, they found 25 livers had lasted for at least 100 years across (laughs) both the donors and recipients' bodies, which is kind of mind-blowing, and and 14 still remain in their recipients. (laughs) So the the li- I'm not saying the livers are immortal, but um, you know they're doing pretty well. So the rules for donating organs usually I would have thought you know you have to be a, it comes from a fit and young donor, but with livers that's not we don't have those rules so much, do we not? So yeah, generally doctors will prefer to transplant livers from a young, healthy, fit donor, but there's a really huge demand for livers, and we don't really have enough available. So. Often we do have to get transplants from older people, but in situations where you could have a younger liver, doctors will generally transplant a younger liver over an older one. And this is where this study is really cool because the livers that lasted at least 100 years were actually from older people. So on average, those donors were aged 84 when they died, Um, whereas the donated livers that didn't reach 100 actually had a much younger average age of 38 when they passed away. So this provides evidence that older donors can sometimes contribute more successful liver transplants than younger it, ones. That's It's amazing. And, and do we know why? Anything we know about the livers, the older livers that might give us a clue as to why they last longer? Yeah, so there is one clue, which was that the team found that a certain enzyme called transaminases were actually at lower levels in the donors of livers that survived for a century. And these enzymes are known to be linked to inflammation and injury of the liver. So it suggested that generally, yeah, in the donors, these livers were already healthier. But really, they don't know exactly why these livers could last so long, because it was just a fraction of the livers that lasted that long. The idea really is that studying these amazing livers could basically reveal new factors that we're not aware of that actually allowed them to last that long. It makes me wonder if we could get the transplanted liver, you know, and get that into a third recipient. (laughs) You know, I wonder if they would do that like a domino. The liver can just keep going. Yeah, that is a really fascinating um, thought, really, because... Yeah, it's funny to think that our organs could actually outlive us. That's not something that is done, and it's not standard practice, of course. But it is a a really intriguing thought, given that some of these livers are still on, like, carrying on beyond a hundred. 
I do like the, I mean, it's already an incredible legacy, isn't it, for people who do donate their organs that you help someone else survive. But the idea that your liver outlives you as well, I don't know, that's just a strange and quite lovely legacy to to bequeath. And I wonder if, if when we have more clues about the liver, it might help with understanding how to keep other organs healthy and vital, and maybe even whilst we've still got our original ones. Yeah, and um, it's, it's really interesting thought. So different organs do seem to last different lengths of time. And one mm. of the researchers I spoke to said, she's not aware of any other organ types that do live as long, you know, do reach 100 the way these livers have. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, the liver is a particularly good organ in that we have ways of keeping it alive and manipulating it before we transplant it into the recipient. Um, so if we can understand those factors that help livers last longer, we can tweak them um, before they go into the recipient. Whether that translates to other organs um, has yet to be discovered, really. Now, we've talked a lot on the podcast about Arctic warming and ice melt and the looming danger of sea level rise. Greenland contains so much ice that if it all melted, it would raise global sea level by 7.2 metres. Now, it would take a long time for it all to melt, but some sea level rise is locked in. I think the latest estimate is that a minimum of 27 centimetres is guaranteed. And last week in Iceland, there was a meeting of the Arctic Circle Assembly, and scientists and engineers met to discuss ways to preserve the ice, so to address the impacts of climate change rather than its causes. One idea is to slow the ice melt by stopping warm seawater getting underneath the ice sheet. So to find out more about this, I spoke with glaciologist John Moore and environmental social scientist Ilona Metainen. Both of them are at the University of Lapland in Finland. And I started by asking John how we can physically stop the water reaching the ice sheet. Yeah, that's a, a good question. And uh, it's not an immediately obvious answer until you see the geometry of some of these very deep fjords that are... Mm. Um, draining the plug holes, if you like, of where the ice is going out of the, the bathtub of Greenland. Now, these fjords are connected to the Atlantic Ocean and to the warming waters globally, usually by a fairly restricted entrance area, whereby the fjord inside close to the ice might be close to a kilometre deep. There's a step at the entrance to the fjord that might only have 250, 300 metres of water above it. The ocean in the Atlantic, the warmer waters, they tend to be deep because they're very salty. They've come from the tropical areas. They've suffered a lot of evaporation, so they're warm but salty. These waters are prevented from that step from filling the fjord and melting the ice very quickly. But as that Atlantic has warmed, more and more water has spilled over into the fjord and accelerating melting. So our idea is to try to limit that water coming in by effectively just raising the height of that step, perhaps by 100 metres, at least buying some time in terms of how much warm water gets close to the ice sheet. Ilona, I wondered, you've been talking to local people about their feelings about preserving the ice. What what are their feelings about that? Uh, Of course, this is a a new scientific idea. So our project has been the first time that people hear about this method. 
So the, the views on, on this have been um, both positive and slightly concerned about some, some possible important impacts uh, for local livelihoods, for instance. Basically, for instance, uh, within tourism, the views have, have been more um, like optimistic or positive, while people engaged in fisheries activities have been both interested and also concerned because the ice fjord in Ilulissat is, is so important for fisheries, both in the fjord itself, but also in the wider Disco Bay area. But generally, people want to preserve their way of life and the environment that they've, they're used to. They don't, do we ever hear about people who, who think about, uh, you know, an ice-free part of Greenland that they could, you know, perhaps do some farming on or develop? Is there any sort of voices saying, you know, this could be good for us? Well, uh, Greenland sees also a positive size to climate change. For instance, new fish species have arrived. On the other hand, they will not be suffering from sea level rise themselves, but there, there will be sea level decline instead. So because of the self-gravitation and, and also for the post-glacial rebound. But that's, right. that's, of course, like on the longer term. People have been expressing their uh, interest towards doing climate action in Greenland as a good starting point. However, the final decisions or um, forming of opinions on whether they would like to have ice sheet conservation in illicit ice fjord, of course, the opinion can be formulated until until they have further information and our study is still ongoing regarding especially some of the impacts. And John, let's talk about a bit more about the the idea to increase the lip. I mean, has there been any prototype made or any testing or done of this yet what what sort of materials are we going to have been proposed to use to do this well we haven't gone beyond the computer simulations as yet except that we are working now with professional engineering companies both uk based and in norway and uh, the idea of this meeting was to bring together a range of expertise, both in the practical side of things, the uh, local communities and economics and the, the research side of stuff. So we had a lot of different perspectives on what might be a potential outcome. We are not engineers, we are scientists. And uh, to actually address those things like making prototypes and materials, it's much better to rely on these professional engineers. But we do know what we expect are the the design concepts. So essentially what we have is a heavy pre-made set of concrete foundations that would be gently lowered onto the sea floor. And they provide the anchor for a buoyant curtain, like you may have seen in separating cold rooms from the warmer outside parts, but still allow you to drive through with a forklift truck or something like this. (laughs) Right, yeah. So the forklift truck represents, uh, in this analogy, a large iceberg that might come along and push the curtain panels to one side, pass through, hopefully without damaging, and the curtain panels would spring back into their ideal shape. So the curtain reduces the flow of warm water to the base of the ice sheet, is that right? Yes, that's right. This is not anything to do with the the surface warming. So the melting that's occurring because of the atmosphere heating up, that's going to proceed and it's going to accelerate. And in Greenland, that's a big, big issue. In a sense, the reason why we want to go to Greenland is 
both for the local benefits, but also because we need to learn things about Greenland before we try anything in Antarctica. You can't go straight to Antarctica. It's so much more logistically challenging. And if you'd like to hear more about that project, we'll put the full-length interview out in a bonus episode of the podcast on Monday. And there's a story about the project too in the magazine, and I'll put that in the show notes. And that's all for this week. Thanks to our guests in the pod, Carissa Wong, Michael LePage and Madeline Cuff. And thanks to you for listening. Do tell everyone about our show and subscribe so you don't miss out. And remember to check for the full-length interview about geoengineering in Greenland. Uh, That will be out in a few days. See you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.